We get experts on everything that sound like they're sort of scientific expert. They, they're, they're not scientific. They sit at a typewriter and they make up something like uh, oh, uh, food grown with uh, fertilizer that's organic is better for you than food grown with fertilizer that's inorganic. May be true, may not be true, but it hasn't been demonstrated one way or the other. But they'll sit there on the typewriter and make up all this stuff as if it's science, and they become an expert on foods, organic foods, and so on. There's all kinds of myths and pseudoscience all over the place. Now, I might be quite wrong. Maybe they do know all this thing. But I don't think I'm wrong. See, I have the advantage of having found out how hard it is to get to really know something, how careful you have to be about checking the experiments, how easy it is to make mistakes and fool yourself. I know what it means to know something. And therefore, I can't, I see how they get their information. And I can't believe that they know it. They haven't done the work necessary, haven't done the checks necessary, haven't done the care necessary. I have a great suspicion that they don't know that this stuff is, don't know, and they're intimidating people by, I, I think so. I, I don't know the world very well, but that's what I think. That was Richard Feynman, who hardly needs any introduction talking about the pseudoscience he was witnessing in his later years as a world-renowned physicist. Now, Feynman is well-remembered for his passionate stance against what he called cargo cult science, analogous to the cargo cults of people in the South Seas who give offerings to plane runways, waiting for some divine cargoes of goods to be delivered. Feynman said that cargo cults follow all the apparent precepts and forms of scientific investigation, but they're missing something essential because the planes don't land. And that something essential was scientific integrity. What I like about this recording is that Feynman, as macho as he was, admits that he could be wrong. I mean, he probably doesn't think he's wrong, but he always keeps open that possibility. He understands that true scientific integrity isn't reliant on fear-mongering or making an argumentative or political stance, although these things could arise from credible science. And what he says about really knowing something amazes me. Isn't this something that all of us want, to really know something? Maybe to really know yourself, to really know other people, to find things out, and this seems so simple. But what does scientific truth actually mean? Especially in the context of modern physics, where things get a little strange really quickly. A huge pillar of the scientific method is falsifiability, proposed by Karl Popper. A theory must be able to be proven false. But that's a tall order. It made me think of Bertrand Russell, who had this famous teapot analogy, which he developed in the context of religion. He said that if you were to suggest that between the Earth and Mars, there's this China teapot revolving about the sun, nobody would be able to disprove his assertion, provided he were careful to add that the teapot is too small to be revealed, even by our most powerful telescopes. But if you were to go on and say that, since his assertion couldn't be disproved, it was intolerable to doubt it, then he should be rightly thought to be talking nonsense. This burden of falsification was picked up by many other scientists like Carl Sagan, but this is something that applies to analyzing science, both credible science and pseudoscience. 
Einstein's theories can't be disproved with any solid evidence except at quantum levels. But you can't really disprove the existence of aliens on Earth either, right? Now, I think a key statement in Russell's analogy that may tie Feynman and Popper's ideas together is the fact that the teapot is too small to be measured by telescopes. If Sir Arthur Eddington didn't see light bend around the sun during the 1919 eclipses, or if we couldn't measure muons due to their short half-life, then it would suggest that relativity and relativistic effects were false, because these are things that can be measured. But how do we disprove that aliens don't exist on Earth in a quantifiable way? And how do we approach making credible science and noticing pseudoscience, which is all too prevalent in our daily lives? Today on The Helix Show, I'll be talking with Dr. James and Allison Kaufman, esteemed psychologists at the University of Connecticut and experts on pseudoscience. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Helix Show. Today, we have not only one, but two very special guests, Dr. Allison and James Kaufman. Dr. Allison Kaufman is a research scientist in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, as well as a professor of psychology at the University of Connecticut. And Dr. James C. Kaufman is professor of educational psychology at the University of Connecticut as well. Both have interests in the science behind creativity and are editors of the book Pseudoscience, The Conspiracy Against Science, and have received many other awards and distinctions. So Dr. Allison and James Kaufman, thank you so much for joining me on The Helix Show. It's good to be here. Thank you. Um, And I kind of want to start with Dr. Allison. So can we talk a bit about your background, we usually start from childhood to where you are now as a successful researcher and professor. Sure. It's a little convoluted. My interests actually are mostly in animal cognition and intelligence and behavior. So I work sort of at the intersection of a lot of disciplines. I have a background in marine mammals mostly. So I've done a lot of work in zoos and aquariums, and a lot of my research was in zoos and aquariums and in the cognitive ability in animals. And when I met James and found out he was interested in creativity, I became interested in innovative abilities in animals and how the ability to innovate was enhanced, was part of cognition and helped animals to survive a changing environment, basically. So that's my research ability, interest. But I have this secondary interest that we're both interested, that we both have in pseudoscience. And that's sort of a little bit more of a reflection of sort of current society, if you will, for lack of a better word, and a reflection of what I'm seeing a lot in social media and people's misunderstanding of things that in science, for example, biotechnology um, and medicine and issues like that. So having a biology background, I see a lot of people not understanding things about modern medicine, modern biology, modern agricultural science, and those sort of misunderstandings spreading around a lot. Was like psychology specifically something 
that you knew you would do in high school、uh, before you got into college, or was it more focused on marine biology and you started branching out more? More of a more of a biologist than anything. So the psychology is it has been a later addition. I see. And Dr. James Kaufman, kind of the same question, I guess. What has your journey with science been? Always wanted to be a creative writer. <clears throat> When I was a kid, I was writing anything, stories, essays.、Uh, was really into the high school newspaper. In college, I was a double major, and between creative writing and psychology, both my parents are psychologists. They develop IQ tests. So I kind of grew up with that, and I was planning on getting my MFA in creative writing. And I remember one graduate school had a little card with, where they sent the application that said, "Every year we graduate twenty MFAs, and every year there are jobs for thirty MFAs in the entire country.、Yeah. If you can do anything else, do that other thing." And I think it was meant to like rally you. And yes, I want to be a creative writer. I thought, yeah, I can do something else. And so I applied, kind of scattershot, to psychology programs, and I got accepted to study cognitive psychology with a very, very well-known and, and terrific scholar named Bob Sternberg. And first two years, didn't really know what I was doing, but then. Discovered you could study creativity and kind of extended my interest in creative writing to that, and kind of never looked back. It's just it's a really thing to study, and worked at educational testing service for a couple of years, and then went into academia and you know being a professor and、um, pretty much if it's involved with creativity, I'm interested in studying it. When I was at Cal State San Bernardino, they needed people to teach critical thinking, which was kind of akin to intro to psych, and that both were offered and they were expected for all the undergrads to take. And that's when I got into the aspect of pseudoscience, just the idea of critical thinking and fallacies and sensible risks and all this stuff that we tend to not be very good at. But I think that's really. Interesting how you kind of started in creative writing, because this is something that we also talk about on the, this podcast is that a lot of times humanities and sciences don't really seem to merge, and I think psychology is kind of this middle ground. And especially、um, since this episode's theme is pseudoscience, I think that psychology can have a lot of stigma associated with、uh, pseudoscience and just the history of people like Freud or like IQ tests. I don't know if I'd call IQ tests pseudo science, but there's a, of, there's a lot of pseudo science surrounding. I mean, most things, and there's a lot of there's a lot of bad psychology, but there's also a lot of perfectly solid psychology.、Yeah. We can talk a bit about how pseudo science originates, and. Like, what are some of the earliest examples, even like pre-internet world, where we can think of something being pseudoscience? And as you said,、uh, pseudoscience is so prevalent in a lot of different things. I mean, I think, I mean, I think pseudoscience has always been around because because people have always been around, and 
I don't think people always like the answers that science gives them. And people look for answers that they want, which is, which is where pseudoscience comes in. Oh, and right now it's become a much more prevalent problem because of things like social media, because it, it spreads so much easier. And because it's very hard to tell an expert from a layperson and to understand why it's important to tell the difference between you know, to an expert and trust an expert and to understand the importance of expertise in these things, that's, I, that's sort of where the, the discrepancy lies in the idea that not everything you read online is, is written by an expert and why it's important to be looking for something that was written by an expert or explained by an expert. But so, you know, back when we were cavemen or whatever, the guy in the cave next door, you sort of knew that he wasn't a medical doctor when he went to treat, you know, if you, the lion bit your arm off, you knew you had to go to, you know, the tribe's doctor or whatever, not the guy in the cave next door, because you knew who had expertise, you know, in medicine, because you worked with, you knew who in your community was good at what and who was responsible for what. And you knew everyone's credentials, you knew the, you know, so because they were much more sort of inherently obvious, if you will, for lack of a better word. So, but at the same time, if the guy in the cave next door told you he could save your arm and you really wanted your arm saved, it would be tempting to go and try to let him treat your arm as opposed to the community doctor because people like to believe that, you know, that that's possible and that's human nature. So, I mean, I think pseudoscience has been around, you know, since people have been around because of that. Something that I want to ask before any further discussion is, do you have a specific definition of pseudoscience? Because I think if we look past that history at things like phrenology or something, those were people with credentials who were advocating for these things. Or, right. So what is your definition of pseudoscience? It's a sketchy thing to define because you're entirely right. Phrenology sure. was a credible science at one point, and now we call it a pseudoscience. So there are, I usually use it, there's a sort of a list of criteria for pseudoscience that a lot of people tend to use and it's it's characteristics more than anything. So things like having an in-group and an out-group. So pseudosciences tend to have, you know, we believe in it and if you don't believe in it, you're not one of us. They tend to look for proof instead of falsification. So in science, we attempt to falsify things. We never say we can prove anything definitively because, you know, as I, you know, when I teach it, I always say, well, what if the answer is really it's aliens from Mars that did it? It's a ridiculous answer. That's probably not the answer, but you can always say that. So in pseudoscience, they will ask you for proof. So you tend to see that a lot in pseudoscience. You tend to see a lack of progress. So if you look at astronomy versus astrology, for example, astronomy has progressed in the last 100 years, you know, 
astrology has not progressed, has remained the same for thousands of years. So you see, you know, changes in science, even like if you look at the recent, you know, COVID issues, the science on COVID has changed because that's what science does. It changes and we get new ideas. Pseudoscience doesn't change. Pseudoscience remains the same. So there's, there's a, a list of seven or eight characteristics that we sort of use to, to approximate a pseudoscience. But beyond that, in terms of a definition, it's super tricky. You're right. And, and it's subject to change because you're right. Something we used to call credible science is no longer credible. Yeah. So going into how you guys edited um, and published this book, I noticed there was like different topics you address, you address biotechnology, you address like the peer review process, and how do you guys decide what to include in this book? And from what I understand, was this book kind of compiled papers of different students or different contributors? It, it was, we, it was a mix of we had some topics we knew we wanted covered, and then we had some people we knew we wanted to reach out to. And so it was a little bit of a mix of we knew these people did good work, and so we asked them. And we, they're like, we knew we wanted somebody to write about this, somebody to write about So, for example, we have a chapter on IQ tests. The first people we asked were actually my parents, who didn't know, <laughs> but recommended other authors who I think did a great job. And then there were other people who we knew we wanted involved. So... One of my good friends is a very accomplished historian of science, and I really wanted to, you know, what I wanted him to tackle was the history of pseudoscience. And again, I, I think he did a really nice job. And Alison, Alison, do you have any other? There were, um, we looked at also who had been in the news recently. So there were a couple of people who we really wanted who had been active in, very publicly active in some of the fighting in pseudoscience. So some of the folks who were active in, in the medical community who were active, active doctors and surgeons who were involved in fighting some of the you know, naturopathy and other potentially dangerous medical practices. Some of the folks who worked in the, the pro-vax community, we knew we wanted. There was a, a researcher who had been very vocal in agricultural biotechnology, who had been targeted by the organic industry and had been in the news a lot because of, because of the attacks that he had uh, on his personal life that he had sustained from the organic industry. And we knew we had wanted to, to touch base with him and give him a chance to speak out. So there were also some other people that we knew we directly wanted to contact because of the work that they had done. and how exposed they had been, how their, their exposure on social media and how well-known they were for the work they had done. I did want to talk about kind of the psychology as you guys are both very well-established like psychologists behind why people perpetuate pseudoscience. And there's even people um, I know personally that I respect and they're actually very highly educated and maybe they still have things like they're still anti-vaxxers or people like Linus Pauling, I think, who kind of perpetuated this vitamin C and he's a genius in chemistry. So why do you think 
people perpetuate these myths. And I think Dr. Allison Kaufman, you also kind of mentioned that people, people want to find what they're looking for. And I think it's also hard when maybe you're suffering from a disease or a condition and there's someone out there who says they can fix it. But then I think of some other things like, like flat earth theories or like the moon landing never happened theories. And why do you think people fall into these traps? Or maybe I shouldn't use the traps, so word traps, but... I have a couple of things that come to mind. One is there's something called cognitive dissonance. We like things to be consistent. We like our thoughts and our actions to be consistent. So if we think, you know, if we think that smoking causes cancer, but we smoke, that's a hard thing to grapple with because we don't want cancer and yet we smoke. And so either we change our behavior, like we quit smoking, or we change our thoughts and we figure, well, I bet the connection's overblown. <clears throat> we like to be consistent and we are much more likely to change our thoughts than our actions because quitting smoking is hard, but saying, you know what? I bet those studies aren't really accurate. That's pretty easy. You see that happening a lot with COVID. People, they behaved a certain way. They're going to keep behaving that way. And it's easier to make excuses, rationalizations, accusations, rather than actually change your behavior or admit that they were wrong. These are very hard things to do. I think another one, <clears throat> people like easy. I mean, <clears throat> as somebody who studies creativity, you know, the studies that make headlines are, you know, if you have a messy desk, you'll be creative. Or if you work with a plant next to you, or if you take a walk and, you know, no. I mean, it's not that these don't work at all, but maybe they work this much at most. If you want to be creative, you're in a practice. You're going to practice and practice. You're going to consume what exists. You're going to learn and you're going to get feedback and all this stuff that is hard work. I mean, if it was so easy to be creative that, oh, if you use a blue pen, I mean, okay, great. But it's not that easy. I mean, and this has been, tr I mean, true throughout time. We want quick fixes. We want easy. We want effort. I mean, and that includes me. You know, if there was a button I could press that would just magically clean my house, of course I'd press that button. If there was a button that I pre could press that I thought might help clean my house instead of me having to like scrub, which okay, ask somebody else to scrub. Of course I would. It's just you. Usually, things that are too good to be true are too good to be true. But I'm wondering for things that maybe are a bit more theoretical in nature, like alien invasions or something just more abstract. Why do you think that people, and a lot of these are kind of considered conspiracy <laughs> theories, I guess. I, I, think, think, I think people also like to belong to groups that have things to talk about. I think it's, it's appealing to have something to talk about and to be part of a group that discusses things and to have something exciting to, you know, gossip about, if nothing else. If something happens in town, if there's an event or an issue, 
everybody goes online and talks about it. And if it, you know, and if it's, you know, think about like a police car goes running down your street, right? Everyone gets on the community, for, you know, uh, Facebook group and it's like, oh my God, what happened? And posts. If it turns out like the guy was late to pick up his kid, that's boring, right? Nobody wants to talk about that. So they want to speculate that like, you know, somebody got murdered or whatever, because it's much more fun, even if it's not the truth. So like, you know, if you wake up, you know, in a ditch on, on Sunday morning, you know, either you, you know, were out late drinking and stumbled there after the bar or you got kidnapped by aliens, which is much more fun to talk. You know, there's, there's a certain value to us, you know, as people about, you know, talking about things like that and, you know, having something to talk about, you know, I mean, what, you know, how much more did you click on CNN when, you know, there are exciting things in the news because there's exciting things to read and talk about, right? It's just, good. I also think if we have a general viewpoint, so for example, anti-authority or pro-authority, pro-authority, we can apply that lens. So if you are generally anti-authority, you don't believe the government or what you're being taught, that can extend to, well, then why are we believing astronomers that the Earth is round? Or why are we believing that you shouldn't stick toothpicks in your eyeballs, you know, or, or, or whatever bizarre, some of these are bizarre, but, you know, or why are we believing that dinosaurs ever existed? Like if, you, if your instinct is you want to challenge authority, that you can then kind of extend that to things where, like as on one hand, there are times it's very good to challenge authority. So I mean, if you're just told, you know, hate these people or whatever you do, don't do this. And it's our, it's our nature, but there are also times there's a great scene in the movie Groundhog Day when these three characters are talking about rules and they always tell you, don't do this and don't do that. And then one of them is driving and he starts driving on the railroad tracks. And he says, you know, like, they say, don't drive on the railroad tracks. And one of them is like, that's actually one of the rules I believe in. I mean, you can't just be anti-rules, but some people are. I think it's something with science becoming so politicized. And this is actually something... Uh, the last podcast I did was with talking about science in the movies and how people started wanting scientific uh, justification for what they see on screen. And I think also, pe like, in the political realm of science or these pro and anti groups, all of them say they're science-based and all of them claim the other is pseudoscientific or if a study comes out supporting one side, they'll say, oh, this study's methods was wrong, or like, it's kind of this back and forth. And I'm wondering maybe if we could take an example and kind of break it down. How do we identify what's right? It takes a certain amount of expertise. So anybody can read scientific literature. The problem is it takes a certain amount of expertise to know what you're looking at. There's a difference between sort of looking at numbers and reading conclusions and being able to interpret them. So you can look at a paper that was published in a scientific journal, and that's one thing. 
But when you go to graduate school and when you study, you know, spend 10 years in a field, you learn beyond that. So there are, there are good journals and there are bad journals. There are places that, can pub, that will publish just about anything. And there are places that have a more strict peer review. And that's an important thing to know how to do. So if a layperson you know, just looks up an article online, even if they use a scientific database and they say, look, I found this article that says artificial sweeteners are bad. The first problem there is that they may have pulled up an article that was published somewhere that was what we call a predatory journal. And those are journals where the author can just pay to have something published. And it doesn't go through a strict peer review process, which means that the conclusions were not validated by fellow scientists. So it looks like it was published in a legitimate scientific journal, but unless you understand that you need to look up the title of that journal, the board and how does the editorial process, the peer review process on this particular journal work, that there's a difference between journals. So not just any journal is appropriate. And that's not something you, you automatically know unless you've gone to graduate school and, and even if graduate you, even, even if you have, if it's not your area. So there, there could be a yes. research journal and the research journal of cancer. And one could be fully legit, the best research, and the other could be, they'll accept anything. And I wouldn't know which is rich, and I've been to graduate school because I don't study. That's true, too. Yeah, it, it's very field specific. So you can pick up an article, and it turns out it's from a predatory journal. So it's not credible, even though it looks like it's been published in a peer-reviewed journal. So there's the first, the first problem right there. The second problem is that you may not understand the statistical methods. And that's actually what we're seeing a lot with, with when people will post COVID numbers, for example. Okay, so those numbers might look to you and me like one thing, but I'm not trained as an epidemiologist. I don't really know what those numbers mean because I haven't spent 10 years studying epidemiology. Just like you wouldn't know what to do with a bunch of numbers about animal behavior because you're not supposed to. So the artificial sweetener one is a really good example because people will say, you know, artificial sweeteners cause cancer and they read the, the results section of a paper they found. Problem is because they are not familiar with the field and how the statistics were run or you know how the methods were run, they don't realize that the amount of artificial sweetener that the test subjects were given is the equivalent to somewhere around, you know, like 40 times their body weight a day. So when a lot of these papers are done, and this was the problem with a lot of the artificial sweetener ones, is that the quantities that they gave their test subjects, because they, were, they weren't looking for, do artificial sweeteners cause cancer? They were looking for what is the upper limit, you know, at what amount of artificial sweetener can we cause cancer? So they weren't, they were looking for, you know, what huge amount can we give before we start seeing side effects? And so, yeah, they meant to, like, they were giving so much that they wanted to see side effects. 
and nobody nobody has that much sweetener. It's the same problem with a lot of the studies with agriculture and pesticides. So, yeah, you can get you see, you can see you know a correlation between pesticides in your bloodstream. You know, testing for pesticides in your bloodstream. If you eat literally the equivalent of you know, 70 pounds of apples a day, every day for the rest of your life. Okay, but nobody eats that because they were looking to see at what level can we cause it. I mean, you can die of drinking too much water. People have. If you drink enough. <laughs> so many of these studies, people read the results and say, look, they, they found cancer. Well, yeah, that's what they were looking to do. They gave a dosage high enough. So the numbers are a problem. Sometimes even the subjects are a problem. One of the most famous studies of pesticides in rats, where the rats have these like huge tumors that they say were caused by glyphosate, which is Roundup, they used a strain of rats that was specifically engineered to develop tumors, okay? Unless you work in biotechnology, you don't know that. So it was published in a good journal, right? Anybody can pick it up, okay? The people who wrote the study didn't show you pictures of the control rats because it wasn't what they were looking for, really. And so somebody who, you know, isn't a scientist, isn't well-versed in that topic, picks it up, sees these horrible pictures of rats with tumors, doesn't know that they were using a breed of rats that was supposed to develop tumors, that has tendency to develop tumors, because they were looking for at what concentration can we cause tumors with this pesticide, not does this pesticide cause tumors? Those are two different questions. So you can still read the articles, but if you're not trained on how to interpret them, you get the wrong impression. And I think a lot of individuals want to question kind of like Dr. Kaufman said, Dr. James Kaufman said earlier, um, like questioning the authority, like artificial sweeteners, even the ones people are the most kind of scared of, those have been approved by the FDA or a lot of these right. pesticides have been approved. And I think uh, another argument that can be made could be like, if we're trying to improve our critical thinking skills or improve this possibility notion in science, shouldn't we be questioning these things? And I think a lot of people who believe that things may be bad do believe that they're just questioning it from a scientific standpoint or they will use anecdotal evidence um, where there might not be causation and just correlation and they'll believe it to be true. Do you guys think there's different scales of badness? For example, my, like my mom, whenever she gets a cold, she really likes drinking orange juice because she says the vitamin C cures her cold. That I think it's kind of been proven in, the, in science that vitamin C doesn't really cure colds, but it's anecdotal evidence and it doesn't really do her any harm. But right. for things like maybe climate change or anti-vaccination, do you guys think there's scales of evil, I guess, when it comes to pseudoscience? Absolutely. I mean, I feel like there there is the generally harmless. There is a stuff where 
what you're doing may not be harmful, but it's having you not do something health. So like if your mom's drinking orange juice and as a result, refusing to take antibiotics or any medicine, that's a different level than just she's drinking orange juice, also following her doctor's advice. Right. And then it, it, it keeps going up in terms of things that are actively harmful to you and then the things that are actually harmful to the world. I mean, like, before the whole COVID stuff, I mean, we had measles and mumps pretty well under control. And the anti-vax stuff, which was largely based on one study that was since retracted and had so many huge, huge problems with, we've let these diseases come back. It's not only hurt the people whose kids aren't vaccinated, but it's hurt other people where their kids can't be vaccinated because of autoimmune issues. And, and so, yeah, I feel like there's increased, to me, like there is the does no harm, just wastes money, whatever. There's the only hurts if you can't multitask. There's hurts you, there's hurts others, and then there's hurts everybody. I mean, like the climate change or a lot of the COVID stuff where we could have had this at a much, much better place. And I think what you mentioned about like the study that kind of spurred a lot of anti-vaccination, a lot of that movement, it says a lot about like the scientific method and how can scientists be more proactive to not let their results, and sometimes it's not up to the scientists, their results could be interpreted in any way. But I also think there has been more awareness about the kind of bias, bias in researchers themselves who want to make their research more credible. And I think an example with like Millikan's oil drop experiment is people saw the number that Millikan got and they wanted to get that number, even though that number wasn't right the first time. Or th- th- what people want science to be replicable, but I think there's also this bias that you want to get the result the previous researcher did. So you might tweak some variables to get the same result. So do you think there's practices that scientists or these experts in the field can implement to reduce the risk of of pseudoscience? Certainly. Some of the issues go even deeper in that <clears throat> most journals want to see interesting results. I mean, I've been a journal editor also, and if you have two papers and one of them has something really interesting that will get attention and has some flaws, the other one is completely methodologically, statistically perfect, but it's kind of like, eh. On one hand, the AMP paper is still the better paper. It, de- it depends how much. So if it's something where there are flaws, but it's interesting and it's not wrong, it just needs more work, that's one thing. But if you look, okay, well, what is a journal's motivations? Like as a journal editor, what, what, do, what do you want for the journal? The big thing is called impact factor. And that's depending on, depending on how many times is an article cited or mentioned by other papers. You get cited by other papers, even if they're saying, you know, this person said this other thing stupidly, they're still citing it. 
And so if you're a journal editor who's more focused on the journal getting acclaimed and an impact factor, it is tempting to accept papers on hot topics with exciting results, usually counterintuitive results, because that's what's exciting. If I remember there was one study I did years ago, I was I was looking at writers. I've done many of these type of studies. And in one of them, the main thing I found was that writers who had suffered a major physical or medical illness were more likely to die young. I was very confident in this finding. It is the least interesting thing in the world. Who cares? Of course. What journals want to see is this shocking thing. Like, can you believe that you know, if you hold a pen for one hour a day, you're more likely to develop cancer. That's not true. You know, that's an interesting counterintuitive finding. And so where is that? On one hand, you sure, the science is good. On the other hand, if you go for the safest, most clear-cut things, it's harder to get major advances. And finding that balance, which certainly is not leaning towards accepting the most provocative stuff. I mean, I'm not suggesting that. But finding that point, and it keeps shifting. We learn more about statistics. We learn more about methods. We learn more about everything. So there is like that role of the review editor or the people who are choosing what is published. Is there something that, because because just from my experience in like being in the lab, I think there's times where you can, you know that something should adhere to the standard scientific method as maybe like Francis Bacon put it or something that's well known, like tests always question the results, be critical. But then there's also, well, maybe we don't need to include this data point. Or I think maybe a more famous like historical example with like Dolly the Sheep, where there's so many experiments that didn't work before one worked and the one that worked was published. Do you think that scientists should try to include the ones that didn't work, even if it's not interesting and not a lot of people will pay attention to them? This is where, I mean, short answer is yes, of course, but this is also where there's a lot of change that needs to happen. Because the way, if you look at how academic scientists, where much of the research happens, you get hired and you have usually about six or seven years to prove yourself and then you go up for what's called tenure. And if you get tenure, generally, you're gonna be okay. You know, in that it's very, very hard to fire you, almost impossible. The things that are valued, like they look at, okay, how many publications you have? What is the impact of the work? Are they really good journals? And the problem is that you are punished usually for doing the right thing. So if you, let's say you've done four studies and the third one, you found the great results and then one, two, and four, you find, yeah, not really. It is much better to say, look, here, I did these studies and Given this, well, maybe it could be from this, but these, you know, let's not get too excited about it. The problem is that most really great journals don't want to do that. And so 
often you'll end up publishing in a lower level journal and then it won't get cited as much. And so this is still the right thing to do. But when all of the systems are kind of a little broken, I understand, even if I don't agree, why scientists, I mean, I'm not being obviously something like this fudging results, bad, bad, 100% bad. But I understand, even if I don't agree with why scientists might, well, I can defend doing this and therefore I can get job security, get bonuses. I mean, one would hope there would be this higher calling, higher standard. I'm also speaking from the luxury that I have tenure. I'm a full professor. I do a study and I find, yeah, okay. Great. I'll send it to a lower level journal. It's there. I think it's important to show, look, you know, we think these things are related, but they're kind of only this. But I had that luxury. Somebody just starting out, I mean, I would hope. But I also feel like there's a lot of blame to go around. I see. So it's like a bigger problem. And it's something that, like, has to be changed from the bottom up. Um, I guess for the general public, not just in the science community, how can people try to, do you think people should attempt to fight pseudoscience? And the reason I say this, there's like a famous Faulkner quote, I think, from The Sound of the Fury, where he's like, the best way to take someone is to take them for what they think they are and then leave them alone. And I think that it's very hard to change someone's mind. And how do you think that we should approach people who don't believe in vaccinations or don't believe in climate change? Or I think this is really hard to approach. I wish I had an answer for you there. <laughs> I mean, it's... I, I really don't. Information is the only thing, you know, but not everybody's willing to have information, to take and, information. Expert information, as in... Not just expert in information. Yeah, information. Right. I really wish I had an answer. Yeah. I mean, teaching critical thinking in junior high, in high school. Yeah. And fallacies, logic, is hard when it's become so politicized. Yeah. Because there's science and there's politics, and I mean, there's the politics of science and the science of politics. But when people don't just have an opinion or a gut feeling, but have a very strong political or religious or philosophical or anything viewpoint that is driving them is not really about the science. I mean, it, it's, it's why I don't love the whole concept of, well, do your own research. No. no I mean, be critical thinkers. But somebody Googling for 10 minutes versus what the CDC says, no, it's not equivalent. I mean, we have this kind of this, I mean, actually one logical fallacy is false equivalence. And that, you know, well, this, but that, but things aren't equal. The need to give equal time to, you know, the 900 scientists who say this versus the one person who says, well, but this, that these aren't equivalent. Yeah. And just curious, do you think that 
I think that in this digital age, a lot of people want to, they have good intentions in posting maybe things about a study that they read or posting that we should wear a mask or that we should follow this and that. They're not experts, but they, they don't necessarily have wrong intentions. Maybe they can interpret something wrong. What do you think? Do you think social media can help people, laymen, just um, get out there and express their advocacy? Or do you think this further politicizes the issue? I think it's both. It's a hard, there, but I yeah. think it's both. Because yeah. I do think it can go both ways. Yeah. And obviously, as someone who agrees with what a lot of these people are posting, I think, I mean, maybe people should do this. But if I was, for example, in disagreement, I might find this blasphemous. Or I also think that a lot of these people who are doing this aren't doing it because they are experts or they've even Googled. They're doing it because it's cool and because other people are doing it. But... Right. Also, this social pressure maybe can be a plus in public health when we want a lot of people to do something. Yeah, that's possible. Absolutely. One, one danger is that they actually did a study on breast cancer where it was looking at whether awareness is a good thing. And because that's the whole Susan G. Komen cure stuff is all about awareness. The problem is that when you focus on awareness, if it's something really obscure, that's great. If people have never heard of this one in you know, 500,000 thing, and you should know that if you have these four random symptoms, it means this, that's one thing. But for something like breast cancer, people know about it. What they need is money. They need money for research. They need money for stuff. But the problem is that if, if people share something or, you know, I support this, then they feel like they've done their job. And people are less likely to donate money after they advocate like that. Mm -hmm. And so does it help to share information and look, you should know this? Well, I mean, if it's something people already know and people know breast cancer exists and it's bad and you should get it treated, what if you focus on awareness or you know doing that and then you feel like okay that lets me off the hook it's like with the als ice bucket challenge the whole point is that you're supposed to dump the bucket of ice in your head and then donate money it wasn't an or people don't need awareness of als or lou Gehrig's disease we know it's there they need money and so the whole point was to raise money and somehow it became more about virtue signaling and fun. And, and again, I'm not saying these are just like terrible things, but if sharing that post means that you now feel, I don't have to do anything else, you know, then just face the fact that you don't want to do it. Yeah, I think that that's a really good way i guess to kind of wrap up the discussion of pseudoscience where it is such like a complex problem but having books written by experts like yourself and being edited and listening to like the experts i think is the main thing that i got you can't really 
And I also fall into this trap of like thinking I should do my own research on things I'm interested about, which is cool, but maybe I shouldn't go and post on social media about something or <laughs> like this one study I found and read for five minutes. So I think that's a really important distinction to make. I did want to kind of ask some questions I asked all of my guests. These are more general questions. And one of them is, what are some of your biggest regrets as a student, whether that be in high school or in college? Huh. The one that occurs to me, for both, certainly for both, for as a college student, I don't think I realized how rare it would be to have a time when there would be all these things happening around me, people coming to talk on all these different topics and shows and just all this stuff for incredibly low prices because you were a student. And I went to stuff, but I went to a fraction of what I might have. And as soon as you become an adult and like you don't get a student discount, you're not on a campus where stuff's coming to you, all of a sudden the difference between, I mean, let's say going to a, going to hear a public talk from somebody interesting. It goes from, oh, I'll roll out of bed, walk 20 minutes and see something for free versus I'm gonna spend a bunch of money, I gotta get a sitter, I gotta drive 45 minutes and then you end up not doing it. That's a good one, yeah. I, just, I mean, at various points, and I think of all the people I had a chance to see speak and I saw some of them, but like, you know, Spike Lee, the, the mm. head of China, all these people would come and I you know, got them tired or whatever. And, that's a good one. I would have gone to a few more. So. Yeah. Do you have one, Dr. Allison? That's a pretty good one. That's, that's probably about what I would say, too. Right. Take all the opportunities you, opportunities you can get when you get them. If you could have one snack food or food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Ice cream. What, do you have a flavor? Anything chocolatey. <laughs> I'm a mint. I'm a mint girl. Do you have a favorite musician or genre of music? I like folk music, but not many other people do. <laughs> Dr. Jane. Musical theater. What's one of your favorite, I guess, Broadway musicals or? Sweeney Todd. Most things by Sondheim. <laughs> do you have a favorite book or movie? <laughs> James has a couple. <laughs> Lone Star, probably my favorite movie. Passage by Connie Willis, favorite book. Allison? I'm much more indecisive. <laughs> okay, and my final question is, if you had unlimited time, money, and resources, what is one burning question about the world that you'd want to answer? I, mean, I feel like, Allison, yours would be something like, what are all the animals that are all around the world like? Yeah, I'd probably uh, go explore and see lots of animals, go to exotic places. Let's see. It's hard. I'm lucky in that any burning question I have, I tend to get to. <laughs> yeah. 
it would probably just be once COVID's over. I don't really like traveling, but I like seeing people. So I have a lot of friends throughout Europe, Asia, and the chance to get to see them more than once every couple of years. One thought about, I just wanted to tie in one, because you were talking about with pseudoscience and that you should be careful about sharing. It's not so much, I would equate it to your mom and orange juice in the sense that doing your own research, sharing articles, that's good as long as it doesn't mean you ignore the other stuff. Like if you're doing your own research and then you disregard the CDC, that's not good. But if you listen to the CDC, but also explore what else is out there, yeah, that's okay. As in, I don't want to be never do your own research. Never share anything you find. That's not what I'm yeah, saying. Clarification. Only if it replaces, only if it's here are my thoughts and therefore I don't care what the evidence or other expert or extra experts say. That's the part that... It's a good clarification. Thank you so much for listening to The Helix Show. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or follow our show on Spotify. It would greatly help us out. And please drop a comment on YouTube or shoot me an email at chris at helixscience.org to let me know any questions, comments, or future episode ideas. Any feedback is greatly appreciated.